And they've got to be able to do it from behind a tree so the person can't see them timing them. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. People just jumping out, slap. I mean, is it psycho or is it just great planning? I'm like, why are we out here? (laughs) Because they they love the game. (laughs) No. (laughs) I do not want to hit a little white golf all around. Hey guys, a uh, very warm welcome to episode two of season two of Henny and Hallie Women with Game. I nearly said I can't go. Henny <laughs> with Hallie. Uh, I know, I, we're going to have a hard time not saying can't quit golf anymore, uh, switching it to Women with Game. But it's for good reason. It's for good reason, everybody. <laughs> it is. And we both say it the same. Women with Game. Yes, we do. Women with Game. Exactly. There's no, no accent changes on this one. <laughs> we hope that you guys really enjoyed our first episode um, live from the US Women's Open, where you were on site, Hallie. How much did you enjoy that week? Honey, it was incredible. I mean, the energy there just with the, you know, groundbreaking purse of $10 million and then Minji winning in commanding fashion and getting that $1.8 million winning check. It was just, it, w- it was really incredible. And I think everybody was just so excited to see the commitment the USGA has to the women's game and ProMedica as well. And, and the golf course was incredible. And just overall, it was just a really, really amazing week. Yeah. In case you guys missed it as well, it was history was made in more than one way because it was the biggest prize purse in women's golf. So it was 5.5 million last year. 10 million this year and compared to the men I think they were at 12.5 so it brings us an awful lot closer um to the guys of their US Open um and then there was that insane Swedish amateur who made history and I think uh, Ingrid Lindblad and then Minji Lee started making history with low scoring records like it was just a really fun week all round um which leads us to you might be wondering (laughs) Why are we changing from Can't Quit Golf to season two, Women with Game? And uh, this season, we're really focusing on women's golf and not just players, but all of the stories of women within the game of golf, um, because it's something that obviously you and I are really passionate about, Hallie. Yeah, absolutely, honey. I feel like there are so many stories in, like you said, in the women's game, but also whether it's, it's, you know, women that work in the game. And we were lucky to have um, the assistant championship director um, from the USGA on the last episode, but we're going to have um, female rules officials and college coaches and amateur players and people that, you know, have outings for women. I just, there's so many stories, really, really interesting stories that um, haven't been told that I'm really excited that we're going to get the chance to um, to get those stories out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like it's the stories that you and I are so familiar with because we've grown up around these incredible women or we've met them over the course of our journey through working in golf. And so it just really feels like a privilege to be able to share those with everybody because they go so behind the scenes and you may not. I mean, women's golf is finally getting great exposure in terms of the players But as we keep saying, there is this whole ecosystem of women working really hard behind the scenes and being really successful within golf. So um, hopefully that can inspire, you know, maybe if other women want to get into the game but aren't really sure how and maybe think, oh, there's only playing or the media angle. There's actually so many different areas of golf that you can get into and be really successful in. 
so many, so many. There's you know, coaching. There's, I mean, even last week at the at the uh, Women's U.S. Open, they had a uh, a grounds crew that was like completely female. Yeah. They all had uh, grass tattoos on their ankles, which I think is so <laughs> so cool. But our friend Kira Dixon did a piece on them, and yeah, like you said, honey, there are so many different avenues to go in this game if you're if you're wanting to to work in it that I think it's going to be really cool for us to be able to talk to a lot of them yeah 100% I'm really excited and don't forget um we've actually I've had some really nice feedback of people saying hey I'll, I really want to hear from as you said you name them amateurs and maybe female caddies and so many really good ideas that I've been sent um from people that are already excited for who we could possibly have on this season so all our guests are not filled and booked up yet so if you guys have any ideas of people um or areas that you would love to hear from let us know on social media um at Henny Coy at Hallie Led. <laughs> well we do have a very very special guest for our second episode of the season Henny got to talk to Katrina Matthew who's an 11 time winner around the world mother of two and a back-to-back winning Solheim Cup team captain of the European team. So take a listen to this. I am very, very happy to be joined by Katrina Matthew on this podcast episode. Um, Beanie, I can't refer to you as Katrina just because it's been, <laughs> <laughs> it has been for years. I'm going to go back to um, my first memory of you, which was you winning the Women's British Open at Lytham and St. Anne's, which was my first Women's British Open. And uh, the course just completely kicked my butt and ate me alive. Um, but you had just done it straight after becoming a uh, mum for the second time, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which, yeah. You know, I was early 20s and that just completely blew me away. Let's go back to then. Um, and I guess because I'm, I'm obviously a new mum now, my little one's mm. 16 months old, and I can't imagine winning a major <laughs> just not long after giving birth. What was that time like for you, sort of balancing motherhood and playing? And I think obviously the being the second child, it was a lot, uh, I mean, a much easier birth. So, um, you know, in that respect, it was a lot easier. Um, and I suppose I had already come back, you know, from having had Katie, the older one, you know, two years earlier and I'd come back and played pretty well. So, um, you know, I was I was confident because I remember with Katie, I was nervous, you know, take six months off, seven months off. Will you come back? Will you still have the competitive juices? Will you want even want to do it? So I kind of knew with Sophie that this it would be that would all be fine in that respect. But um, I think coming into the British, it just I was just so relaxed. Um, normally, you know. I probably put so much pressure on myself at the British with being, you know, the home open, one you want to win. Didn't often get a chance to play at home in front of, you know, kind of family and friends. So I think I probably put too much pressure on myself in the past. So this week, that week I came in really with no expectations. I thought, you know, if I could get top 20, perhaps kind of push myself into Alison Nicholas's kind of radar for a Solheim pick for later that year. Um, that was kind of my goal. And it was one, just one of those weeks where I wish I could have done it every week of my career that, uh, you know, if I hit a bad shot, I really genuinely wasn't that bothered. So I said, well, I haven't been playing, so I'm going to hit bad shots. Uh, yeah. I wish I could have that attitude my whole career. <laughs> but um, so I think that was really what helped me, to be honest. Um, you know, coming back and having those lower expectations and not, um, you know, not putting as much pressure on myself as I had done in, in previous years. And, you know, everything 
I mean, just clicked into place. It was just, I mean, I think to win any tournament, you just have to have that bit of luck. And, you know, I hold some bombs and, you know, everything just seemed to go my way that week. I think I played played Lytham for four rounds without going in a bunker, which, uh, yeah. you know, quite a feat. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. As I said, I was there, played the same golf course, could not see how that was possible. And I want to go sort of skip ahead from there to your Solheim leadership victories um, and sort of work backwards. And obviously that's such an incredible historic achievement. What do you feel like over the course of your career led to you being able to be such a great leader of that team? Um, you know, I think it helped that I had played in so many in the past. Um, you know, I think I've, I've played in nine and had probably five or six different captains. Um, and I think I got in to the teams in various sorts of ways. I played my way in, I got a pick. So I was kind of, will I or won't I get in? In other years, I was definitely going to get in. So kind of had every different kind of scenario of how to get into the team. So I think that helped, um, you know, with the players who were all in those different positions trying to get in the team. And I think you just pick up things from from other captains. There's things and, you know, things I liked that they did and some things that I didn't like. And then obviously you hear, you know, it's just like anything, the players kind of moaning, oh, why don't we know this? Why don't we know that kind of thing? So um, I think you just pick up things. And I just thought, well, I'm going to try and, and do it and I suppose um, have the players, I kind of thought of myself more as a player in a way, what would the players want to do? What would the players want to know? So uh, that was kind of how I approached it. I really didn't uh, do anything really that much differently than that. Did you think of it at all as a leadership role in terms of I'm leading a group of people, I have to have X, Y, Z in place, whether that's the X is to motivate to commiserate, to inspire? Like, was there any elements like that that you were sort of thinking about? Probably not. I probably wasn't that um, analytical about it all. I just kind of tried to be myself. Um, I think Laura's a great one to ask. She was always saying, oh, what do we need motivational videos for if the players aren't motivated to play in this? <laughs> you know, they, they wouldn't be in the team, which is fair enough. I mean, if you're not motivated to play in a Solheim, you don't need me telling them, uh, you know, be motivated in that. So, um yeah, I was really just myself. And as I say, I, I tried to treat them how I would have wanted to be treated as a player, you know, trying to give them the pairings up front and kind of try and be open with them. My main, I suppose, thing was communication. I think that was of the ones I played in, you know, when things didn't go as well, perhaps as they should have done, it always seemed to come down to lack of communication, you know, uh, players just not knowing what was going on or why a decision had been made. So I just tried to, I mean, I'm sure I didn't please all the players all the time, but, um, you know, if I if I made a tough decision, I tried to explain to them why I'd done it. What was the most difficult part or the most challenging bit of captaincy for you? I think it's, um, you know, telling, because obviously it's telling the players who aren't playing in that session. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the toughest bit. Um, I think both times around when I was captain, every player played the first day, which I think is important. Because um, if you sit out and don't play till the second day, it's tough to tough to get going. I think, um, and obviously personally, I, I kind of made a, the odd mistake going into Glen Eagles the second day. I thought the second day pairings were were the toughest to do, and when to tell the players who was playing and who wasn't playing. So um, you know, I learned from that for the for the next time round. 
There was such high, incredible emotions at the end there at Glen Eagles. What was your feelings? It just seemed like it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster that final day. How would you describe how your feelings sort of went? Because I know that from the outside, you seem so even keel, but was that the reality on the inside? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I had my little earpiece in listening to all the friends <laughs> going backwards and forwards. Uh, you know, I think that last day, every time I seemed to look at the leaderboard, it just looked as though, you know, a half was going to be our best, our best scenario. Um, you know, I remember going down, I think Catherine Imre was driving the, the cart and we were driving down to catch Suzanne on the 18th on her last hole. And Catherine, I said, oh, God, it's going to be a half. We're going to tie. And Catherine goes, no, no, we're going to win it. We're going to win it. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, I mean, I suppose that, I mean, then just in that last half hour, all just everything that, um, you know, could have happened went our way. Obviously, you know, we had Anna in as a win and then Bronte winning. And then obviously Suzanne's amazing, amazing win at, uh, against Marina. Yeah. Uh, can you shed some insight into this, the post Solheim celebrations that night? Well, all I could say probably is I'm surprised uh, the Solheim Cup was still in one piece. <laughs> Brilliant. And while we're talking about Solheim Cup, actually, I probably should mention one of my most embarrassing travel moments in life that you were there for in Iowa. Do you want to tell it or should I? No, what was that one? <laughs> the, the suitcase debacle. Oh, your suitcase coming off. The, I'm... Was I not standing next to you? And I said, oh, this poor person, their underwear is coming out their suitcase. And then you looked at your bag. Yes. yes. That is your nightmare, isn't it? When you're watching the stuff come off your bag. Yeah. We were you so... the person whose case it might be, and then you realised it was yours then. That's exactly how it happened. So it was obviously my, my first Solheim Cup working on the broadcast side for Sky. And I'm just sort of, you know, standing around like... <laughs> looking after the flights landed in Iowa. It's been a long travel day and I'm sort of spotting who's there. Hi, mm. Beanie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the suitcases start coming out. And then <laughs> you said, oh, my God, what poor soul. There's T-shirts and there's underwear there coming out onto the belt. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. <gasps> Worst nightmare. Oh, my God. That's my suitcase. That's my stuff coming out of the belt. <laughs> most embarrassing travel moment ever I had to like scramble and try and get it all <laughs> at least you got your stuff at least it hadn't all come out before it got on the bill <laughs> that's true that is true nothing was missing yeah. <laughs> um okay let's go back to I want to go back to the start of your career because you mentioned that you're playing the women's British Open this year which is going to be a historic one as it's play being played at Muirfield for the very first time and obviously women are now allowed there um and it's quite a big statement back when you first started golf growing up in scotland what was the landscape like and how have you seen it grow over the years yeah i mean obviously i, I grew up and still live in north berwick which is just um, you know five minutes along the road from muirfield um you know we are kind of spoiled for choice in the number of courses here so um you know, growing up, I had maybe played Muirfield a couple of times, you know, a couple of my, my dad's friends, you know, maybe asked me along for a game. But, you know, I was a member at North Berwick, a member at Gullen. So it wasn't, um, you weren't always trying to get a game there or whatever. So, um, but I was, I was very fortunate. I mean, North Berwick, which was my home club, um, you know, the ladies membership, you know, couldn't have been, couldn't have been friendlier, actually. You know, they let me play in all the competitions and probably got sick of me probably beating them. But, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, they were, they were, I mean, to be fair, overall, I had a pretty, pretty good experience of golf, even though it was um, an amateur golf. I remember dude playing in one county championship at a course over in Fife and my gran, who never came to watch golf, uh, came that day. She was probably in her 80s and walked in front of the window and suddenly this man comes running out. She's not allowed to walk in front of the window. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but uh, gladly these days have, have changed. And, um, you know, it's great to see. It's great to see, you know, a club like Muirfield, um, you know, having women members now and obviously having the Women's British Open. Um, you know, I think for the for the top ladies to showcase their golf on these courses that... Um, you know, people have watched men's opens for over the years is, is great for women and great for women's golf. And then obviously um, we just had the US Women's Open that was the biggest prize purse in women's golf history. How much is that sort of, what are your thoughts on that? Is it sort of about time or, you know, is it a bit of what, like, do you see it continuing that growth? I think it will continue. Um, I mean, I think probably in the last 15 years, I've seen a huge change in, in women's golf and the exposure and just in women's probably sports in general. Um, you know, things don't change overnight, but I think you've just seen that with the, the USGA and the RNA and AIG, you know, bumping up their purses um, and now Evian have bumped up their purse. So um, I think it just takes one or two tournaments to start that. And, you know, hopefully we'll get to where, where tennis are, uh, where it's equal pay. Yeah. What do you feel like would have to be sort of the next steps that could or things that could be implemented to hurry that along? Um, that's a tricky one, actually. Um, I think just steps like obviously Martin Summers and Mike Warner making. And, you know, I think they're the two who can probably do the fastest in making the, the men's and, and ladies opens, you know, the equal purses. And then I think if they do that, then the other tournaments will, will start following and seeing. And I think, um, you know, companies and businesses in general are seeing that um, they're wanting to spend or be seen to be spending equal money on men and women. So um, I think it'll get there in the end, but um, these things don't happen overnight, but I think we're definitely moving in the right direction. Yeah. What what thing, I'm curious, would you change about golf if you could, if you had the chance? Um, I would make it uh, have to do something about the speed of play. Yeah. I play. <laughs> so if there's one thing I would do, it would be the officials could just go and slap shot penalties on players. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the most effective, do you think, over five? The thing isn't going to work. Uh, they've got to, and they've got to be able to do it from behind a tree oh. so the person can't see them timing them. <laughs> I love that. People just jumping out, slap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if they do that for you know a few weeks, they'll soon stop it. I've got a great visual of refs just Someone jumping out the tree, calling out shot penalties. Um, what As would you, you know? The slow players know the system; they play it. <laughs> yeah, they do. I know we've we've both witnessed that, haven't we, many times? Yeah, it is frustrating. What would be the um, time? Do you feel like the eighteen holes should take? I think in a, certainly in a two ball, you should be looking at three and a half in a tournament, uh, certainly no more than four, and a three ball, four to four and a half. Yeah. Max. Probably four max. I'm being pretty generous at my four and a half. I was going to say, that is generous. I must say, I love lockdown, uh, when I, the second lockdown in a way, because up here in Scotland, you could only play in two balls. So we could go out and you could nip round and you'd know you were done in two hours. <laughs> yeah, see, that's amazing. 
but every yeah. message would be I'm yeah. for and I'm going, oh, I'm loving this two balls. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I forgot to ask you actually when we were talking about leadership earlier in Solheim is um, we saw each other in Wisconsin and you'd had a, given a talk to the Ryder Cup team, European Ryder Cup team before um, the week got started for them. What things did you say to them? Um, that was probably, I've never been so nervous in my life, suddenly just in a room and this whole, the whole Ryder Cup team, all these people I watch, you know, playing golf and TV, uh, I probably stuttered through something, uh, <laughs> obviously wasn't very good from the result, but, uh, no, I mean, it was a huge honour, obviously, to go and do that, but, uh, I was probably slightly, slightly starstruck, but, um, just, I suppose, you know, was wishing them luck and, um, you know, saying we'd all be behind them and just to go out there and, and try and, you know, obviously do their best and win. Yeah, because obviously you'd, for people that may not know, it was only a few weeks beforehand that Team Europe, led by you, had won on US soil, mm. which is exactly what um, Podrig and the uh, US men's, yep. uh, European men's team was trying to emulate. Did Podrig mm. ask you for any insights into what you'd done well that week? I think it was just, um, you know, having the no crowds, um, which obviously they had as well, which was so, so different. I mean, we had, I think, you know, you've got, what, 60,000, 50,000 people there. And, you know, we were lucky if we had 50 European fans. And to be fair, at the Ryder Cup, it was pretty much the same. It's just, it was just trying to get the players, I suppose, into that mentality that, I mean, in a way, I tried to tell the, the Solheim team that it was nearly going to be easier because rather than, thinking you're going to have just a few thousand fans there, you know, you're you're just going to have none. So you just need to get on with it, put your head down and off you go. So we kind of went with that mentality that we didn't expect any cheering for us whatsoever and just go out there and, and do, do your stuff. For um, those who may not be in the UK or have seen, obviously it was just the Jubilee weekend, mm. which has got me curious. How was it when you met um, Queen Elizabeth and got your MBE? Yeah, it was it was amazing actually. Um, for me, I, I it was Princess Anne when I got my OBE and MBE. Uh, actually, she was the one. But uh, it's an amazing. We went to Buckingham Palace for the MBE, uh, which was fantastic. My mum and dad came down, and my husband. And then for my OBE, which I actually just received uh, in January, went to Holyrood in Edinburgh. So uh, ah. two very different ones uh, with uh, Princess Anne both times. So uh, great. I mean. For anyone, you know, born in the UK, British, um, you know, it's, it's a huge honour. And yeah. I think, uh, well, certainly that the MBE was, uh, you know, my mum and dad were super chuffed and you could drive into Buckingham Palace. And we were actually just down in London with the with our daughters for Easter for a few days sightseeing. And we went to see Changing of the Guard. And of course, typical tourists would toddle down with 10 minutes to go and can't see a thing about yeah. 20 crowds. So and I said, oh, the last time we were here, we just drove right in. <laughs> <laughs> Is it? Was that a bit of a pinch me moment for, was, for young you? You just kind of could drive in and go through and into the kind of courtyard. Um, yeah, I mean, very very special. It's those kind of things that uh, you know put all the hard work into make it all worthwhile. What advice would you give to young girls now wanting to follow in your footsteps in the future? I think for ones who are just getting into golf, I think you've just got to go out there and try and hit it as hard as you can. Uh, It's definitely men's game and the ladies game is becoming a power game. Um, You know, you've got to hit it um, a long way. So 
for the people just beginning, the youngsters, just go out there and swing it as hard. Because I think that's a very difficult thing to to learn once you once you've kind of established your swing. And it's very difficult. You've seen that over the years with players trying to put length on. Um, but I think so if you can get that kind of speed as a youngster, it is much easier. So that would be my biggest tip. I think it's easier for a coach to try and straighten out or fix flaws, but it's very difficult to add speed, I think. And then what about people from maybe inside golf, but maybe outside of golf who would want your advice from like a leadership point of view? Um, well, I mean, I would say it's, it's all communication. Um, that was, as I said earlier, that was my biggest thing. Um, I really didn't change who I was. I didn't think... I didn't really sit there and think before, oh, what sort of leader am I going to be or what sort of captain mm-hmm. am I going to be? I just tried to be myself. But um, I think I, you learn things it's from experience. And um, my main thing was communication, get to know the players, um, you know, try and keep them informed of things and um, just try and keep them, keep them all together, you know, not have someone, sometimes someone can look as though they're left out. So, um, and it's getting a good team around you, isn't it? I mean, I had some great vice captains. So, um, you know, it's not just me, it's uh, Laura, Suzanne and uh, Catherine and Mel and, and Inver- at uh, Glen Eagles. So, um, you know, it's a good team around you and good communication, I think. Well, I'm going to let you go because A, it looks like a gorgeous evening, rarely in Scotland. <laughs> and B, you just... <laughs> this evening. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's a bit chilly, I'm sure. Um, and you've just come back from your holidays. So thank you for joining us. Okay, no problem, Penny. Thanks. Penny, fantastic job with that interview. I I love Katrina's energy and it's a little bit different than some of the younger stars that we got to speak to in episode one. You know, a lot of those girls that were amateurs and up and coming pros. How would you sort of compare and contrast Katrina's take on the women's game with the, you know, the people that we got to talk to in episode one? Yeah, I have known Katrina for years and I think one of the things I love about her is she's so incredibly successful, yet so very British about it. She's so self-effacing and just really relaxed and humble and doesn't really, you know, think of herself as any different or super successful. And I think from the bottom of her heart, she just wants the game to be open to as many women as possible. And definitely wants exactly the same thing as some of the younger stars that we interviewed last week. Um, And I think her way of going about, everyone has a very different way of going about it. And I think her way is just leading by example of I'm going to do all of these incredible things. And just by me doing them, that can inspire the next generation. Um, And it definitely, like, even from my small point of view like it inspires me as a mother I remember like I was saying in the interview she my first memory of her is her win, winning the women's British Open and having just become a mum and that now just blows my mind and sometimes when I'm thinking of traveling I definitely look up to Katrina and Karen Stepples um, who are two you know British English and Scottish golfers who traveled with kids or left their kids at home so I'm like great those are people who have done it and if they can do it I can do it. Um, so I think that is an incredibly powerful way of inspiring and one that she does so well. And um, yeah, like at Whistling Straits, I had the pleasure of walking around with her for a few holes. We share the same agent. And we were just having a lovely little chat about kids and family and 
golf and what food she's eating and and she had literally just made history as the first back-to-back European Sohan Cup captain but wasn't interested in talking about it at all was just so engrossed in the golf and the Ryder Cup and cheering on the European team there and just having a chat so um yeah she I think she is just the way that she inspires the next generation is just by being an incredible role model and going about her life and making I think the important thing is making all of that seem very achievable and very normal. Mm. So yeah. here in the interview, she doesn't feel like she's done anything special. So that means if I'm a young girl, I'm like, cool. If she definitely then, if she can do it, I can do it because it sounds like she's just a normal person. I'm just a normal person. So it's possible. Right. Why not me? Yeah, she seems, you know, it's funny in this kind of day of social media, because I would imagine, well, I would I know that when Katrina was sort of up and coming, there was no Instagram, there was no, you know, pressure to build your personal brand and whatnot. And I'm, I'm, you know, she obviously has social media now, but not incredibly active versus like the young girls that we spoke to who are very much like Lily, he, for example, so many Instagram followers and, you know, really building her personal brand. But again, I think inspiring in a different way. And Mm. I'm all, I mean, you and I, we are active on social media all for it. It's a great way to connect, but it is kind of refreshing to sometimes talk to someone who, I mean, I've, I've look at, you know, Kelly Tillman, for example, who's someone that I got to spend a lot of time with recently, hates social media, <laughs> hates it. And yeah. then again, like I look at her as someone that I grew up watching and just, just such a trailblazer and inspire, inspiring in her own way, because she's just like, this is just what I do. And this is what I'm focused on. And I don't feel like I need to shout it from the rooftops, how great I am. Like, I'm just here to do my job. And, you know, I I just think it's kind of refreshing, like the lack of self-promotion, even though nowadays it feels like we do have to self-promote because social media is just kind of part of the gig, but it is refreshing to, you know, to see these women that, sort of started their careers when that wasn't really as much of a thing and how just humble they are and just they're just so badass and they're like I don't need Instagram like I know that I'm the shit (laughs) essentially you know but I think that's where it's great again in terms of having that diversity of role models so Mm -hmm. like already right now two episodes in one young girl could use Lily He as her role model. Another one could use Katrina Matthew as her role model. And they both can be complete polar opposites, completely different, but be really successful and have someone that they can look up to. So that's why we're doing this season. And I feel like I'm just so excited to open up. It feels like opening up a can of worms. Like so many of these little stories are going to come to life. And they're not little stories. They're actually really big and need to be told and I'm just really excited to for us to tell them for the rest of the season kicking off with Katrina Matthew me too me too all right well you guys have anybody that you think that we should talk to please tweet at us dm us send us a message and we would love to have them on the pod we've got an excellent list of amazing ladies which leads us to a feature that we're going to be running throughout the season of this podcast Women with Game Wednesdays. So we would love to hear from you guys um, to nominate a woman that you know, a woman in your life that you would love to get some recognition. And Hallie and I will feature them on our social media, on our Instagram stories. We're going to be putting up a question box every Tuesday night ahead of Women with Game Wednesdays. Keep an eye out at Henny Coy. At Hallie Led. 
And we're excited to hear from you guys and hear some more of your stories and feature some of your women with games.